So those of you that were here last week, uh, you kind of got in on this starting place of this new series we're diving into. It's a, kind of a journey through the book of Acts. And I, and I kind of gave a ton of background and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to skip a lot of that this morning and uh, just kind of dive right into it. But we're starting this kind of no end in sight, if you will, movement through the book of Acts. It's a 28 chapters, 100 or 1,007 verses, something like that. And it's going to take us a while, but I love teaching this way. I love teaching through uh, books of the Bible. I love working and journeying through Scripture. I think Scripture is called to be read in context, to understand its sort of historical nature and sort of how God was using it then and its application even in our own lives. And I want us, and I talked a lot about, a lot about this, I want us to be a bibliocentric church, a church that is moved by God's Word, that we open it every time we gather, and we just sort of deal with it. It's really easy to hop through Bible uh, verses or hop through books and pick out the highlights, but it's much more challenging to go through those things that we don't want to hear a lot of times. So we're going to begin this movement in the book of Acts and just sort of see where it leads us. And so we'll take breaks as we need to, but we're going to kind of dive in. And Acts is an incredible book, and it's an important book in our history as a church because it was sort of our first look at the, the first eight chapters of this book that sort of God used to begin to plant this movement that ended up being the Vine Community Church in the first place. So the, this book is special to a lot of us that were a part of our plant in the first place because this is what God used to, to sort of stir up our hearts, to have us ask questions. And, and really the central question the book of Acts kind of poises out there in the first eight chapters is, is what is the church and what is the role of the church in the world? And so the establishment and birth and movement of the church is really central to these first eight chapters. And that's kind of what we're going to be spending a lot of our time looking at over the next kind of few weeks is this movement called the church. This movement that was made up of Christ followers. It was a picture of, of call and of obedience. And so that's kind of where we're kind of going. And last week I spent time kind of painting the picture of how Luke and Acts go hand in hand. And they were originally one volume. It was actually Luke-Acts. And it was later kind of split up, but it was one big volume. It was a conti- or two volumes and one big book, kind of a continuation, if you will. And, and Luke ends and Acts picks up right in that moment. So Luke ends with the, the resurrection appearances that are happening and, and sort of picks up right in the, Acts 1 as, as Jesus is ascending into heaven. And there's sort of this seamless transition between the books. And I talked last week a lot about this call, the call that was on the Christ followers, the call that became really the mission of the church in general. What happened is, is that Jesus has made 40 days of resurrection appearances. He had appeared to the guys on the road to Emmaus. He appeared multiple times to the disciples, sometimes to large crowds, sometimes just to an individual. 40 days of resurrection appearances, right? And he's coming to the end of this 40 days, and he appears really one last time to the gathered disciples. And he gives them some very specific instructions. He says, listen, don't leave Jerusalem, all right? Go stay in Jerusalem and wait for the gift that the Father has given you, the promised Holy Spirit. And the disciples say, well, is this gift, is this the time that you are going to restore us as a nation, establish as a political power? Are we going to be redeemed and restored as Israel? Because the disciples are still thinking, even in light of everything they've experienced through the death and, and the resurrection of Christ, that, that Jesus was still going to be this conquering political hero that was going to come in like the line of David and reestablish Israel as a nation. And they had longed for this, and their view of the world, as we talked about, was so small. But they said, is this the time you're going to do that? And Jesus gives that response, which we spent so much of our time looking at, where he says, look, it's not for you to know the day or the time, right? But you will be empowered by God, right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. And we talked about what that meant and the sort of movement there. And then right before their eyes, 
He was taken up into heaven, the ascension. He was literally taken up right before them. And the church, the movement, begins right then. Right then. So a lot of times we think the birth of the church happens in Acts 2, when Pentecost, which we'll explore in a couple of weeks, but it really happens at that moment that Jesus says, you are my witnesses. This is the call of what it means to be a Christ follower, and it's our call together. So this morning we're going to pick up the second part of chapter 1, and we're going to really explore kind of a neat, what I think is a really beautiful picture, sort of a non-celebrated picture, if you will, of what the church did in its very first breaths. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Acts chapter 1 together. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you, God, that it is, as you say, sharper than any double-edged sword. God, I thank you that it penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Like you say, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we don't take our time lightly this morning. We know that you are going to speak to us, and so God, we pray that you will reveal truth to us. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to to move in you, to show himself to you this morning, however way you want to pray that. Just pray that God would, would move in you. Pray for someone in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name, even if, you know, it seems a little different to you, just pray for somebody else. Each week I say, let's be in the habit of praying for other people. Just pray that God would move in them. Lord, as we open your word, we recognize that there is nothing that we are going to discover here on our own. You are the revealer of all truth, and so Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit, to teach us, to reveal truth to us, God, to open our heart and our eyes, to open our spiritual eyes, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to equip us where we need to be equipped. Father, teach us what it means to be a Christ follower and what it means to be a community of Christ followers. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verse 12, is going to pick up exactly where we left off last week. So Jesus has has been taken up right before their very eyes, right? And it says that these two men that sort of look dressed in white stood beside them and said, Hey, why are you looking for Jesus? He's, He's gone. Very similar to sort of what happens with Mary at the first kind of movement of the resurrection. And it says that this same Jesus, right, has been taken from you. And uh, you've seen him go into heaven. And that's where that part ends. And then we pick up in this sort of first movement now of these Christ followers. So listen to verse 12 and on. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They are joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, and his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. 
Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, and so they called that field in their language, Ekeldama, which means field of blood. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time. The Lord, from the time the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from John's baptism at the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you, you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Now, not necessarily the most exciting part of the book of Acts, but it's really actually an incredible picture. Because this is the first moments of the church. It's the first moments that they breathed life together. What we're going to see is the first meeting place and what they did as they gathered. And it's actually really remarkable. So Jesus had just ascended into heaven. And the disciples do exactly what Jesus said. He said, go and return to Jerusalem. And so they were standing outside the Mount of Olives. And it says that they were about a Sabbath day's walk away from Jerusalem. Now, kind of rabbinical law led to a certain amount of things you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Both the recorded things and the oral traditions that the Pharisees had kind of added. The Sabbath was kind of a day where you couldn't do a whole lot of things. And they had it down to the T. Like you could tie a certain kind of knot, but you couldn't tie another one. You could get a half a bucket of water, but not a full bucket of water. You couldn't chase your donkey if he ran away, but if he just strayed, you could, I mean, the whole thing. Sabbath day's walk was kind of, we get some of this kind of knowledge from some of these Old Testament books, was about a Three quarters of a mile, 1,100 kind of meters was about a Sabbath day's walk. Any good, faithful Jew wouldn't walk one step farther than that because you didn't want to work or exercise or exert any energy on the Sabbath because God said the Sabbath was to rest. And so they took that literally and they applied all kinds of stipulations. And, but the Mount of Olives, the point is, was right there. Right? They want everyone to know that the day that Jesus was ascended was the Sabbath and they were still good kind of Jewish following people and they just walked a Sabbath day's walk three quarters of a mile back to Jerusalem, did exactly what Jesus had said from the Mount of Olives. So they returned to this upper room. So they went upstairs and they returned to the upper room where they waited. And then Luke gives this list of kind of who all was there. Now this upper room is really interesting. We see a lot of things happening in upper rooms, don't we? Starting with the, uh, the sort of Passover meal or the Last Supper. Now, Luke actually uses a different Greek word to define this upper room, so we know it's probably not the same one. Uh, most likely, it's the house of John Mark that we see used in Acts chapter 12. But the idea is these believers gathered together, and they met in these little places. And there weren't a lot of them. And they were kind of fearful for how things were going to go. Even though it was kind of an interesting, exciting time, it was incredibly uncomfortable. Persecution had yet to fully break out, but it was beginning. In a short amount of time, we're going to see people, people like Peter Stone, James is going to lose his life, all because they're followers of Christ. And there was a lot of fear still going around. So they would not just kind of go into someone's house or sit out in public. They would go in his upper room and they would shut and lock the doors, hoping not to be found out. It was exactly what happens. Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem. It's exactly what they do. They go most likely to John Mark's house. They go upstairs. He gives a list of who they are, and it says in verse 14 that they join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, Mother Jesus, and Jesus' family. This was the first gathering of the church. 
meeting right there in this upper room, which is just a little adobe house that probably has some small, tiny little place that they would use, uh, whether it was for meals or something else. And they gathered there. And verse 14 says, this is what the church did when they first met. They gathered constantly together in prayer. So Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit was going to come, this great gift. And he said to go to Jerusalem and wait. And so that's exactly what they did. They waited. Now, the disciples were constantly surprised. I mean, everything that Jesus did was sort of a surprise to them. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the resurrection appearances, even the ascension itself. So kind of wondering what they thought was going to happen when this gift comes is really kind of interesting. Because what we know in Acts 2 is that it comes with this sort of wind and movement of fire, right? It's going to be really cool. And the disciples are just kind of waiting eagerly with expectation, but not in this sort of idle sense. They were together and they were constantly in prayer. God, we know that you've promised this. Here we are, waiting. First moments of the church, the first gathering of the church, we'll huddle together in a locked room, praying constantly together, waiting on the Lord. So as they were waiting, right, those days Peter stood up among them in a group numbering about 120. So in those first few days as they waited, Peter gathers and he stands up amongst them in a group of about 120. And 120 is an important number because in that kind of rabbinical law, there was the understanding that a new community had to be 120 in number before it could have its own council. So if you were in a rural area and you wanted to set up your own kind of uh, Jewish community, you had to have 120 people and you could establish your own council and you could basically have your own place of worship and you would be an authentic community. So what Peter's basically saying is that there's 120 of us, and we are establishing a new community, and one that's apart from Judaism and from the synagogue, but one that is made up entirely of these Christ followers. So you've got the disciples, which I've told you multiple times is more than just the 12, right? It was a host of people that followed Jesus around, but the 12 made up the inner circle. And now you start adding in all the other families, and, and as, as uh, Luke mentions, Peter and the brothers, of, uh, you get to 100 and 20 people, meaning this is the establishment of a community. And we are recognizing ourselves, right, as this new movement of Christ followers. And as they're praying and they're waiting, Peter has this revelation, right? He realizes as he's reading scripture and as he's spending time in scripture and as they're praying that there's a problem, right? And he realizes this problem and he says this, brothers, the scriptures have to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number, and he shared in this ministry. Scripture has spoken, and we have got to fill his place. He was one of the twelve, right? And you know, you remember the story of Judas, right? Judas is the one that betrayed Jesus. For 30 pieces of silver, he went to the chief priest, and he said, look, if you give me that money, and I'll tell you where Jesus is. So they worked out this deal, and on that night that he was betrayed, Judas led the chief priests and the, the leaders and the, and the law keepers and this angry mob to Jesus, and they paid him in, in silver coins, and they arrested Jesus and beat him and crucified him. Remember all that? Well, the story of Judas is, Judas, Matthew records in 27, that he is so overcome with guilt that he goes back to the chief priests and he said, here, take your money. I can't have it. I have betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests say to him, they look at him and they say, hey, that's not our responsibility. And so it says that he took that money bag and he threw it into the temple and he ran away and he hung himself, right? Well, the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, gathered that money together and they said, we can't put it in the offering. I mean, this is blood money, right? All of a sudden they're kind of moved by their conscience. And so what they did is they bought a field 
old potter's field that was used to bury foreigners because foreigners weren't worthy, if you will, to be buried where normal people were. It's just interesting society and things. And they named it the field of blood because when Jesus hung himself, or when Judas hung himself, or whether impaled himself, however you want to translate that word, they get a very graphic account, right, that his body fell headlong and his bowels and intestines spilled out everywhere, right? And Peter basically like, hey, you get what you get, right? That's what, it's your own deal. And they were kind of at this place where they were so betrayed by Judas that it was like, hey, we don't feel sorry for you at all. And so they named the place Akeldama, which just means field of blood. And it's known from that to this day, they say. That's the story of Judas. And Peter, reading the scripture, finds some places in, in uh, really in the Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, those two places where he thinks and believes that God is speaking to them that they need to replace Judas. So he stands up and he says, we've got to fill Judas's space. And there's really two reasons why Peter thinks this way. You kind of got to ask, why is 11, not 12, and why does it matter? Well, really two reasons. One, first of all, Peter believed, right, that scripture was teaching this. He believed that the Psalms spoke, and rightly so, that the 12 were important. And there was an Old Testament connection there. Those of you that know your Old Testament well know that there were originally 12 tribes of Israel that established the nation of who Israel was, right? And that 12 was important. Paul himself in Ephesians says that the church was built, in chapter 2 he says, was built on, right, the prophets and the apostles, the foundation that they laid. Idea is that in God's kind of economy, this idea of 12 is really important. And we've only got 11, and Scripture speaks to the fact that we have to replace that leadership and so we need to obey scripture. We've got to fix that hole where Judas left. And so we've got to put 12. And the second thing that you kind of see there is that the church has got to move forward. And I don't think we really understand the deep betrayal that happened when, when Judas betrayed Jesus. These are guys that had spent every waking moment together for three plus years, walking the countryside, sharing life they had invested in each other. They had been broken together. They had seen victories together. They had gone hungry together. The whole bit. And Judas, one of them, one that had spent intimate time with him, sold out their teacher and their Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And you know what's probably, and we don't know this for sure, but you know what's probably ringing through Peter's head as he's praying and spending time in Scripture are those words where Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, right, you are the rock on which I'm going to build the church. You get the sense that Peter, now rising up into this new place of leadership, and I could spend a whole week talking about Peter's transformation that happens from his denial, remember we talked about this summer, to his now taking leadership in the church. But he's got this heart change, and it's almost as if he understands that the church must move forward. That even though we're broken by what Judas did, and even though Satan's best attempt to, to overthrow or thwart God's move, it will not happen. We are going to obey Scripture, and we are going to move forward forward, even in the wake of what we see to be this incredible opposition. And so, so they do that. And Peter makes this, or a speech, right? And he says, we've got to do this. We've got to fulfill scripture. The church is moving forward, right? And so he gets to the place where he says, it's necessary to choose someone from among us to fill Judas's spot as an apostle. And it's got three criteria that he kind of, we see there. One, they have to have been with us the whole time from the very beginning all the way back to John's baptism, right? All the way back to the very first moment when Jesus was going out, that person had to be with us. That person had to be a witness to the resurrection. They had to have eyes on Jesus himself. And then finally what we'll see is that they have to be appointed or commissioned by God. So there's three criteria. There's only 120 people that are even there. And these three criteria are they have to have been with us from the beginning. They have to have been an eyewitness to Jesus resurrection because they were going to be the leadership of the church testifying to who Jesus was 
and it had to be chosen by God. And so they sort of used those criteria and they set out this process to replace Judas. And it starts out with a nomination. They find two guys, right? They find a guy that goes by the name of Barsabbas, right? Also known as Justice, also known as Joseph, just to keep things confusing. And a guy by the name of Matthias. Two guys. Now, most likely, they chose these two guys because they were the only two guys that fit the criteria. There's only 120 of them, right? When you take out some of the people that weren't there from the beginning, and maybe you weren't standing in Jerusalem witnessing the resurrection, maybe you hadn't seen an actual appearance, all of a sudden the number gets really small, and there's two guys. There's three named Barsabbas, and there's Matthias. And that's it. So they take these two guys, and they nominate them. Second thing they do is they pray. They enter into a season of prayer. And what I think one of the most kind of authentic prayers that we see in this first part of Acts is this. When he says, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen to take over this ministry. So basically they go, here's what we've got. We've got these two guys that fit these categories. And Lord, you have to show us. You have to appoint them. We can't pick them ourselves. You are God and we are following you. So Demonstrate. So they've got this nomination, the season of prayer. And then the third part, which is a seemingly a little bit odd to us, is this idea of casting lots. It says, so then they cast a lot, and the lot fell to Matthias. Now, casting lots we see happen a couple times in Scripture, right? We see it in the New Testament. We see it happen when, when the, 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 the Roman guards are underneath the cross, and they're kind of gambling for Jesus' clothes. And it seems like an odd kind of practice, almost like a kind of a weird form of gambling. And it's like, okay, so if I shake the sticks and the sticks point this way, then God's saying go. If I shake the sticks and point this way, God says no. And in our kind of understanding with having received the Holy Spirit, having a full canon of Scripture and all those kind of things, it seems like that's kind of silly. I mean, I used to sit in my driveway and shoot baskets and be like, okay, God, if I make this and I'm going to ask Katie Wells to prom, and if I miss it, then best two out of three, right, or whatever. And so we've done that where we kind of test God that way, but that's not really what's happening here. It's actually a reference to the Old Testament. And back in the day, there was a way of discerning pre-kind of, re- kind of revelation of the Holy Spirit. There was a way of discerning God's will that Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers use by using and drawing stones and casting lots like that. There was uh, Urim and Thurim were the name of these two stones. They would put them in a bag, and if there was a decision to be made, they would pray, and they would reach that bag and pull out a stone, and whichever one it was would decide whatever God's will and outcome was. Now, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit's going to show up in this incredible way, right? Literally rest in the hearts and lives of believers, and we never hear mention of casting lots in all the rest of the Bible. So you get the sense that the, the coming of the Holy Spirit replaces these sort of things. But it wasn't like shaking the magic eight ball and be like, yeah, try again later or whatever. Like it was going before the Lord and just saying, God, tell us who it is. So they cast a lot and a lot falls on, falls on Matthias. Which, this whole story is not really about Matthias. It's about the movement of the early church. We actually don't hear Matthias' name again all the whole rest of scripture. That's it. That's his big day. He gets chosen and that's it. Because it's not a story about him. It's a story about the church. Now all that to say... There's some really kind of interestingly unique and powerful pictures that we see unfolding in these, literally the first 24 hours or 48 hour period of the church, right? And there's two things that I think I want you to see that I think that all churches, including ours, are really called to. The first one is obedience. So we see the first movement, the first act of the church is an act of obedience. First to Jesus, right? What does Jesus command? He says, stay in Jerusalem, right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't as easy as it sounds. These people, these guys, these disciples were not from Jerusalem. They were uneducated people from Nazareth, all of them. The first thing they wanted to do was go home. 
They had followed Jesus all over this countryside, come to this major city. They had been part of this brutal execution, all these things. The first thing they wanted to do was get out of there. We see it happen with Peter. Right after, right when Jesus was resurrected, what does Peter do? He bolts back for his boat and goes fishing. It's what he knew. Right? Jesus appears to him on the shore. Peter jumps in the water naked. You remember that story? Swims all the way over there. And, and Jesus reinstates Peter. They wanted to return what they knew, to what they knew, what was comfortable. Jerusalem was not comfortable. Even though we haven't seen this sort of massive wave of persecution that takes place, it was still a life-threatening kind of environment. And they were huddled together in a tiny room in a house that didn't belong to any of them, and they were just waiting. But they were obedient because they knew that God had promised them things. And they knew that God was a God who fulfilled his promises. And so they trusted and they waited. They were obedient to Jesus. They were also obedient to Scripture. So what does Peter do? He bases this whole first movement on the fact that Scripture has said that we have got to act. That we're down to 11 and we have to have 12. And so we have to obey Scripture, even when it's complex. I mean, the church could hold on to two things, right? In terms of obedience. Obedience to, to who Jesus is and what he calls us to be. And obedience to the word of God. But ironically, those are the things that we struggle with the most. Struggle with obedience and trust to the Lord and struggle with reading his word and believing it even applies to me, right? In our culture, in our society, scripture, God's word has become a supplement to our own identification of faith. It's become a piece socially and we pick things out that we love and things that we don't, we pretend aren't there, we just skip over them. It's a sort of a side dish to our Christian life, if you will. But if the church is called to do anything, it's called to follow Christ obediently and follow Scripture. Like it or not, wrestle with it, live with it, contemplate it, deal with it. But it becomes the kind of governing source of all matters of faith and life and practice. It is God's Word. And so the church's first movement was actually a movement of obedience. It wasn't a movement of grandeur, where, as we'll see, where 3,000 come to know Christ in one day. The first movement of the church, the first breath it drew was one to say, yes, Lord, like your will. Even though we don't want to be here, even though we'd much like to take off and we don't know what's coming, we don't know what this gift looks like, we don't know what it's going to cost us, you told us to stay and so we do that. And as we're praying and as we're spending time together, you convict us through your word, right, through scripture, and we will act on it. So we see the church movement in obedience. We also see this church... The second characteristic we see is one of prayer. I know that sort of kind of should be one of those things that we just understand, but but what we really see is something incredibly powerful. The church was united in prayer. Verse 14 says this. Verse 14 says that they joined together constantly in prayer, right, as they were waiting for this gift of the Holy Spirit. They joined together constantly. Now, the word word together, joined together, that I use this NRV translation, uh, and the word that's there is actually a word that translates as one accord or with one heart. It has an understanding of a unity of heart and mind, right? Now, together is actually a good translation, but we lose this sort of connection there. So the idea is that the church was gathered and united, joined together in one heart, one mind, one accord, right? They prayed together in unity, in unison, right? And they were persistent, constantly. That word constantly actually translates better as devoted. They devoted themselves. They were constantly in prayer. This is how the church was born. It was born into the unknown. It wasn't born with a list of instructions that were perfectly easy to follow to say, hey, look, here's what's going to happen. You go to Jerusalem. 
two and a half days from now, I'm going to show up in a really cool way. Everyone's going to be surprised. They're going to think you're drunk, but you're not. You're going to stand up. 3,000 people are going to come to know you, and I'm going to do incredible things. God just says, go. And they just fell into prayer on their knees together. We want God to give us answers. Our own lives are riddled with this. God, show me, and then I will say yes. God, reveal to me, and then I will go. God, show me how this is going to work out. And we timeline our lives out down to the T. I'll finish school here. I'll do this here. I'm going to get married when I'm 27. I'm going to meet her at 20 this. I'm going to do this. And I line these things out, and I say, God, I will keep my plan until you show me your plan that is different and that I like as much as mine, and I will follow you. The movement of the early church was one that just said, I trust you. Like, God, we together as one heart trust you. The prayer that we see there is not one of uncertainty. They were in unity, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And a lot of times we think prayer is because we don't know what's going to happen. The church believed they knew what was going to happen. John Calvin once said that prayer is not a prayer of doubt. It's a prayer of expectation and promise that God will give what he's already promised. A lot of times we'll look at the Lord and think, God, I pray that you will be with me, right? We're not praying that God's not with us. He's promised us he will never leave us nor forsake us. It's a prayer of certainty. Of expectation. God, I know. Help me believe that with my heart. As a church, as a follower of Christ, this should be what marks our lives. That we are unified and persistent in our prayer together. And that we are obedient to Christ's call and to scripture. Because here's the thing. Jesus changed everything. These disciples had their lives not only turned upside down by his ministry, but now they have their lives turned upside down by his call. We want to follow Christ just enough to where it doesn't interrupt our world. It's how we exist. And when Scripture or when the call of Christ begins to put a wrinkle into our life or even our sort of social progressive mentality, we all of a sudden have to panic. Say, I don't know about that. Because we want to believe in a God that is convenient to my desires and my will. We want that as a church. We want to go to a place that makes me feel this and makes me feel that and entertains me here and does this. And as long as it does that and fits my social kind of Christian agenda, then I'm in. And when it doesn't, I just go find somebody else and we move around. You know, it's said, there's a statistic that church growth, right? Church growth. 67% of church growth is actually just believers moving from one church to another. It's not actually replicating new believers. It's just, I don't really go there anymore. It's not cool. So I go somewhere else. As followers of Christ, the movement of the church is about authenticity. It's about a call. It's about saying, what if it wasn't about what you offered me, right? But instead about us being committed to Scripture and to Jesus together, about being united deeply in prayer, one heart, one accord, constantly devoted to those truths, saying, God, where are you sending us? Where are you sending us? Now, God, how can you entertain me in this? What do you have for my kids? What do you have for me in this? I'm a single, I'm a married, I'm a this, I'm a fourth, whatever. Boom, God, where are you sending us? This is the call of the church. Jesus messes all of our lives up. Turns them upside down. This is what we're going to see in Acts. We're going to see this call of the Christ followers. That if you pay attention, will so dramatically and drastically mess up your life that you will never be the same. God has turned my life upside down for the book of Acts. It's a dangerous book. But you know what? So is the gospel dangerous each kind of month we take a few moments and we spend time in prayer together and and this is kind of a perfect time for this because we're seeing this unfolding in the, in the book of acts and, and on some level i was reading this going there's a lot of unique things here right for us gathered in an upper room 
We seat exactly 122 people in this place, right? It's just some, some ideas that we can cling to that say, while not perfect, what if we devoted ourselves in the same way? Huddled together, gathered together as a new community, wanting to be obedient to Christ in Scripture, and wanting to pray with unity in one accord and one heartbeat constantly for God to show us what He's already promised us, and that we would believe it. Believe it. 